And uh, when I started looking at the word that God laid on my heart for this morning, uh, I was quite surprised where I ended up, not in the place I expected to be. So I've called it, Who Do You Say That I Am? Now, I know who I am. You don't need to start looking for my nursing home yet. But uh, these words were spoken by Jesus. And I believe that they are. They, were, they sparked a conversation which was a very clear call to follow him. The question seems uncomplicated, doesn't it? Jesus was asking his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter, answering for all of them, said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And I expect that if I asked that question to each one of you here, I would get a very similar answer from all of you. But as I said, this conversation challenged Jesus' disciples. It challenged them to follow him. It challenged them to keep on following him. And I believe that it challenged them to keep on following him to the finish. So I'll just read the scriptures to you. It's quite a long one. I make no apologies for that. I don't want to take anything out of context. We begin in Matthew 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, Others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Just another way of saying Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your, things, your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? 
For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now I believe that there's a progression within these three sections of this particular uh, part of Matthew. It is as though Jesus has got his disciples on a, a fast-track teaching session correcting their misunderstandings and actually lifting the curtain on what the future held. And simultaneously, their faith was challenged. Their hopes were destroyed and their expectations changed as Jesus began to prepare his disciples for the journey ahead, a journey which began with this call to faith. Matthew tells us that these events took place in Caesarea Philippi, which was at that time a Gentile area, about 25 miles northeast of Galilee, where Jesus' ministry was based. And it was in time scale a little over six months before the crucifixion of Jesus. So, who do you say that I am? And Peter being Peter, answered the question for all of them, didn't he, when he said, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. And I, I think, well, Peter, you know, he was probably that child at school and all teachers will be able to identify one of these children who answers for everybody, who won't let anybody else get a word in edgeways, and me, 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 and in he goes. That was Peter a habit of jumping in with both feet. However, Jesus' response to him was, Blessed are you, Simon Bardiona. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You see, this revelation didn't happen because of anything that Peter had done. It didn't happen because of any man's influence on Peter. It was, according to Jesus, a work of his heavenly Father. And you know, that's the first thing we learn about salvation, that only God can reveal to you and to me who Jesus really is. Salvation is his work. It's by his grace alone, through faith in Jesus alone, that we are saved. And it's only when God, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, reveals who Jesus is, that we are able to declare, like Peter, like the rest of the disciples, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I mean, there's another example, there's many, many examples, but in Acts, 
We read as the church was being built that it was the Lord who added to their number daily. Nobody else. Salvation is from the Lord. And that is where the journey begins for each and every one of us. By God's grace, we recognise who the Messiah is. Jesus, the Son of the living God. There's no doubt about it. Jesus' disciples had reached a level of understanding of who Jesus was. But it's clear from this passage that their expectations of what Jesus had come to do were inaccurate. And Jesus knew it. He knew it. They had a lot to learn. And because the time of Jesus' suffering was on the horizon, he began to open their eyes to the nature of his messiahship. One of the things that we often forget when we read the scriptures is that Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. And a rabbi was a teacher of the Jewish religion whose disciples were known as Talmudim or learners. That's what the Hebrew word means, Talmudim, learners. And you'd be interested to know that even today, pupils in Jewish schools are called Talmudim. Learners, that's what they are. And this visit to Caesarea Philippi was like a field trip. And just like any other Jewish rabbi in true rabbinical style, Jesus taught by asking questions. That was how they operated. When you're reading the Gospels, just notice how many times questions are asked. The rabbis ask questions. Jesus asks questions back. Very good example about this one is the road to Emmaus at the end of Luke 24. You know, the conversation between Jesus and the two disciples. Are you the only one who doesn't know what's been going on in Jerusalem? And it goes backwards and forwards, about half a dozen questions in a very short space of time. And... uh, You know that as a 12-year-old boy, Jesus stayed behind after Passover in the temple, questioning his teachers. And Luke tells us that all who heard him were amazed. And his mother understandably said to him, question, why have you treated us like this? Jesus answered, not with an explanation, but with another question. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? That was how they communicated. That was how they learned. Very, very Jewish way of communicating and learning. And a Jewish rabbi once said, every question asked in reverence is the start of a journey towards God. And it begins with a habit which at Passover, Jesus, Jewish parents teach their children And this is the tradition of the youngest child asking four scripted questions at Passover. And it's designed to teach the children about their national redemption, the Exodus. And it's the beginning of their faith journey. So who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Jesus wasn't suffering from amnesia. He was teaching his disciples in true rabbinical style about events which would soon take place. 
We read from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples many things, including his coming suffering and death. Peter's response to the unexpected revelation was, no, Lord, this shall never happen to you. To which Jesus replied, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You do not have your mind set on the things of God, but on the things of man. To be told that the future was going to be very different from the one they envisaged was a shock to these men. I don't believe that any of them thought it would end in the way that Jesus described. This wasn't what they'd signed up for. Peter's reaction was therefore quite understandable. No, Lord, this shall never happen to you. He was saying, in other words, may God forbid this. They had a lot to learn. Though the disciples recognised Jesus as the Messiah, their messianic expectations were typical of first century Jews, based on ideas that had arisen from the covenant which God had made with King David, that one day a descendant of David's would become king and his kingdom would be an eternal kingdom. And this gave rise to an expectation that the promised Messiah would be a, a victorious leader who would free the Jewish people from Roman oppression and restore the kingdom to Israel. And there's evidence in the Gospels that Jesus' disciples expected honour as the disciples of a Messiah. You can pick this up if you look carefully. Can I sit at your left hand? Can I sit on your right hand? They thought as disciples of the Messiah, there would be great honour in this for them as well, but nothing could be further from the truth. The idea of a suffering Messiah who would willingly walk towards his death was totally unthinkable for these men. But Jesus rejected their human-centred ideas in the strongest possible terms. Their idea of a Messiah was just not part of God's eternal plan. And I believe that there's a lesson here for us that we should hold theoretical opinions regarding unfulfilled prophecy very loosely because we are all fallible. And we are just as likely to go off at a tangent as these men did. The main things, Alistair Begg says, are the plain things. And the plain things are the main things. So don't go off at a tangent with things that don't really matter. But how could these men have possibly imagined the enormity of what Jesus was going to do? How could they? In our humanity sometimes, we try to make sense of things, don't we, that we can't understand. But the truth is, that God's ways are beyond our comprehension. We just cannot understand them. For the disciples to speak of suffering and death was to speak of defeat. It spoke of the end of all their hopes and dreams. How could they have possibly imagined that Jesus' death would not be the end? But Jesus was calling his disciples to follow him, 
to follow him through circumstances that they could not comprehend. There would be victory. There would be victory not over the Romans, but over sin and death. And God's redeemed people would inherit an eternal kingdom, not an earthly one. And Jesus Christ, who was a descendant of David, was destined to sit on the throne of that kingdom eternally. It will be some time before they realise that God's plans are far greater, far better, far more effective than they could have ever imagined. So who do you say that I am? If you can say that Jesus, you are the Messiah, you are the Son of the living God, then like his disciples, he has called you to follow him, even through experiences that you cannot comprehend, to keep on following him. It demands action. It isn't a passive thing. You have to do something about it. So in this, I believe, is a very clear call to follow him. Daryl Bock, one of Stephen's favourite commentators, in his commentary on Luke, says that recognition of Christ fundamentally relates to a call to discipleship. Daryl Bock's words, not mine. In other words, if we, like Peter and the other disciples, have recognised that Jesus is the Christ the Messiah, then we are called to be his disciple, his follower. To put it simply, we're called to follow. These men, these disciples, had answered the call to follow Jesus, but they had not fully appreciated what that discipleship would demand from them. And little by little, Jesus was revealing that discipleship is not an easy option, as many here can testify. Jesus didn't promise any of us an easy life. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, there is no greater misrepresentation of the Christian message than that which depicts it as offering a life of ease with no struggle at all. Sooner or later, every believer discovers that the Christian life is a battleground, not a playground. The discipleship journey is a learning process. It is to be so close to him that in the words of a Jewish idiom, we are covered in the dust of the rabbi. Because Israel's such a dry, dusty place as they walked along, they would have picked up his dust. And that is how close we are called to be to the Messiah. Or another one, to sit at his feet, rabbis taught by sitting down and their disciples would sit at their feet. And there's, there's evidence that, uh, that there were women who were his disciples too. Um, I think it's Luke 10, 39, Mary sat at his feet. She was learning. She just couldn't find a chair. She was learning. <laughs> so, the other thing about being a, 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 a follower, a disciple, was that you had to build a relationship 
by spending time together. The relationship between rabbi and disciple was very, very close indeed. It's been described as a father-son relationship. And you can pick up again when you read the scriptures. Paul calls Timothy his son in the faith. Peter calls Mark his son. They weren't literally father and son, but that was the relationship they had. And it's just as true for us in 2022 as it was in the first century. And incidentally, and you know, the normal way that things worked was the Talmudim, the disciples, would wait on the rabbi. They would serve the rabbi. They were there to see to his every need. Well, this wasn't Jesus' way, was it? What did he say? I came to serve, not to be served. And he washed the disciples' feet. We have a different rabbi. A very different rabbi. Jesus often used illustrations from everyday life as he taught And many commentators believe that there was no better illustration for his teaching in this particular section of the Bible than taking them to Caesarea Philippi. In the first century, Caesarea Philippi was a Roman city situated at the foot of Mount Hermon. It was a centre of pagan worship. Baal, Pan, Zeus, you name it, they were worshipped there. It had also been in Canaanite times a place of uh, child sacrifice and Herod actually built a temple there where Augustus was worshipped. I wonder if we could have the first of those photographs up please, Joel. Today, this is is a place called uh, Caesarea Philippi. I will explain in a minute. You can see a big cave at the back there. I think Glenn's one of the people in that lot. Will you not tell? Um, And you can visit the archaeological remains of the site known as Banyas. You can actually walk the ancient paths and look into that gaping mouth of a cave. Uh, And that was where pagan priests used to slit the throat of goats and throw them in. That was what they did. They sacrificed goats to the god Pan. And they believed that if the god was pleased, the goat would disappear. If it was thrown back at them, the the god wasn't pleased. But that's, that's an aside. The pagans believed that caves were a door into the underworld through which spirits entered and exited. And so this cave became known as the gates of hell come to Israel with us, we'll take you to the gates of hell. We're very good, you know. (laughs) And it was believed in first century times to be the gateway into the realm of the dead. Now, is it possible that a place representative of death, centre of idolatry, was where Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I am? Because if it was, Peter's answer makes complete sense. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
There's no cross to mark the spot where Jesus had this conversation with his disciples, although some would have you believe there was. But Matthew had very good reason, I believe, to be so specific about the location where this took place. The truth remains, though. The God of Israel is the living God, and Jesus is his son. You can put the other one on if you want to, Joel. The next one, please. Now, these, just out of interest, these are all the niches where they would put icons of the gods. Um, it's not the cave themselves, but in first century times, there would have been icons of all these horrible pagan gods that were worshipped in that place. Is it possible that before all that represented the satanic realm, Jesus declared, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That we cannot be certain of, but for 2,000 years, Jesus has continued to build his church, a community of blood-bought people who recognise that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And the power of death will never destroy the church because Jesus broke the curse of death through his victorious resurrection. And because he lives, we also will live with him because he is the living son of the living God. Was it with the backdrop of all that represented instant gratification and the belief that the worship of idols brought power and wealth, that Jesus said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? 2,000 years later, there have been great advances in scientific, medical and technological fields, but human nature has never changed. It's never improved. And people still exchange the truth of God for a lie. They choose death instead of life. And they've replaced the worship of the living God with idolatry. They chase the same sort of pleasures where sexual sin knows no bounds. What profit is there in gaining all that this world has to offer? in the shape of power, fame, riches, whatever you want, if the process separates us from God. Following Jesus, becoming his disciple, is not a demand inflicted by this church. It's entirely biblical. It's a process of learning. It's a process of growing. It's a process of developing relationships with one another and most importantly, with Jesus. Dwight Pryor, who sadly is no longer with us, he was the founder of the Centre for Judaic Christian Studies, said that the church is full of undisciplined disciples. We're called to follow. We're called to be kingdom-minded. We're called to submit to the rule and reign of God in our lives. Following Jesus should be our way of life. It's where we walk, one of Mike's favourite scriptures, in a manner 
worthy of the gospel. Walk to bring honour to God. But sometimes we fail. Sometimes we fail. We're human and we fail. Outspoken, I've got this covered Peter. He's well known for failing Jesus. And though Jesus was aware that Peter would fail him, Jesus did not see Peter as a failure. Jesus saw Peter's destiny. That of a rock-like character whose record of achievement in the early church was outstanding. It's a shame, isn't it, that so often we think of Peter and we think of all his blunders and his big mouth, but his record of achievement in the early church was outstanding. His wisdom and his eloquence and his leadership showed a very different Peter to the one who was learning at the feet of Jesus, who was covered in the dust of his rabbi. He actually became a disciple who discipled others. And Peter was given the key. Now, if you don't agree with me on these, you know, please don't take me out and stone me. But Peter was given the key which would open the door of God's kingdom to both Jews and Gentiles. 3,000 were added to the church on the day of Pentecost as, Jesus, as Peter spoke to the crowd. And Peter was the one chosen by the Lord to take the good news of the gospel to the household of Cornelius in Caesarea when the first Gentiles were added to the church. Peter had the keys to the kingdom and he opened the doors wide to both Jews and Gentiles. Authority was given to Peter and to the other disciples to make decisions in the early church. Binding and loosing, which we often trip over, were rabbinical terms. They were legal rabbinical terms. They're nothing like what, what some of us have thought they've meant over the years. They were used to indicate delegated authority. And those to whom this authority was given were able to forbid certain things or to bind them and allow other things or to loose them. As one commentator said, binding and loosing goes far beyond the mere use of these terms in prayerful petitions. Disciples do fail, but failing doesn't mean that you're a failure. Failing isn't the end of the story. It's what we do about it that matters. We're not only called, we are called to follow to the finish. Those whom Jesus calls, he does expect them to follow him to the finish. He, Peter, he could have given up, couldn't he? He could have been so miserable and so fed up at his own reactions that he could have just gone and hid in a cave somewhere and thought, well, that's it. I'm not, I'm not coming out of here again. But he didn't. He didn't give up. He remained steadfast to the end. He really understood what it was to take up his cross and follow Jesus. And history records that Peter died a martyr. 
Now, we're not called to be like Peter. But if we are, if we recognise that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, then we are called to follow him to the finish. John's Gospel records an incident when some, described as disciples, left Jesus. They said his words were too hard. Jesus turned to the twelve and said, Are you going to leave me also? No prizes for guessing who answered. Peter! Lord, where shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You see, a disciple doesn't run when life becomes tough. A true disciple continues to follow even when they do not understand and when others fall away because they've learned that there's nowhere else to go. They've learned to keep on following Jesus. And I found myself feeling quite strongly that there may be somebody here this morning who's just about up to here. Somebody who's had enough. Somebody who's really had enough. But Jesus would encourage you to keep going, to persevere, to follow him to the finish. And there are plenty of people here who are experienced enough to help if you need help. Could we have the last photo, Joel, please? <clears throat> now, this is Mount Hermon, taken from Mizgav Am, which is in the very northwest of Israel. It, mm, yeah. Anyway, it's surrounded on three sides. My sense of direction is not brilliant. But it's surrounded on three sides by Lebanon. It goes right up into Lebanon. There's only one side of it that faces Israel. And that is the view from this place. We went to a kibbutz, the most northernmost kibbutz in Israel. Um, yeah, we do get to some nice places. But um, that is Mount Hermon. And it was fantastic to see it with the snow still on top of it. Now, I'm showing you that. Because I believe, and so do a lot of commentators, that that was the place where Jesus uh, was transfigured before his disciples, because that is in the region of Caesarea Philippi. But if you went to Israel today, and you wanted to visit the Mount of the Transfiguration, you'd be driven up a very narrow, winding path, which resembles a helter-skelter, right to the top of this mountain. And uh, believe me, it's not for the faint-hearted. I hate it. Uh, and if you do actually make it to the top, you'll see these fantastic views of the Jezreel Valley or Armageddon. It's amazing. But I don't really believe that uh, Mount Tabor, which is what that is, it is the place. I think this was the place, but it doesn't matter because the Gospels simply say that uh, Jesus led Peter, James and John up a high mountain. 
And just to add weight to my argument, Mount Hermon is 2,814 metres high, Mount Tabor, 575. Okay. Not that it matters. <laughs> but six days before the transfiguration of Jesus, he spoke these words. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. There are some here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Jesus had shocked his disciples through his revelation of the suffering that was to come and his death. Now he takes that revelation a step further. He frequently refers to himself in the Gospels as a son of man, does Jesus. We read it this morning. It was a powerful first century messianic title. And it's taken from a passage in Daniel 7. And now Jesus appears to tell them that one day the Son of Man will appear with his angels in glory and that some of them would have a foretaste of that event. The transfiguration story is filled with deep meaning. There's countless sermons been preached on it. But it was undoubtedly a foretaste of the future. It spoke of the fact that death is not the end. It spoke of the fact that a glorious future awaits those who are faithful. It spoke of the need to persevere, I believe, to keep going, to reach the finishing line. Paul puts it this way, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who love his appearing. But before the dawning of that glorious day, that day, there's a road to be travelled, a journey of discipleship, a call to follow to the finish. Paul finished his course. He wrote those words to Timothy in probably what was his last letter. I have fought the fight. <laughs> I finished the race. Jesus would soon finish the work that he had come to do on this earth. We sometimes overlook, don't we, the fact that Jesus came as a man. And in his humanity, humanity he had to suffer and die he suffered and died as a man to hear his father's voice saying this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased must have really strengthened his resolve because Luke tells us that after this event the transfiguration Jesus set his face as a flint to go to Jerusalem and he maintained his resolve, didn't he? To the very moment, somebody prayed it this morning, when he gave that victory cry from the cross, it is finished. The debt had been paid. He had reached his finishing line 
on this earth. And just as each of those disciples had to follow Jesus to their finishing line, so there is an imperative that we've got to do the same. Never give in, never give up. Joyce Mayer puts it better than I could have done. She says, when we begin to feel that the battle is just too difficult and want to give up, we must choose to resist negative thoughts and be determined to rise above our problems. We must decide that we are not going to quit. When we're bombarded with doubts and fears, we must make a stand and say, I'll never give up. God is on my side. He loves me. He's helping me and I'm going to make it. Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? If you recognise that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, then you are called to follow him. To follow him through the busyness of life, to follow him through the good times, to follow him through the tough times, to follow him when you don't understand life's circumstances, to follow him through the instability of the, of the country's economic problems and the ensuing chaos and the fact that we don't know who the Prime Minister's going to be at all. We are called to follow him. There's no chaos in heaven. There's no instability in heaven. There's no economic problems in heaven. God's got this covered. We are called to follow him when we're blessed. We're called to follow him when problems abound. We're called to follow him through all of our trials, to follow him to the finish. Because this life is not all that there is. He is our living hope and death is not the end. There's a glorious future ahead. A kingdom whose king is the king of all kings and a king who is going to reign eternally. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Amen.